You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, I am starting a new series, this on the legendary Venetian merchant and explorer, Marco Polo. This one should be fun, as Polo is one of history's most recognized travelers, traipsing around much of Asia in the late 1200s. It's important to understand that Marco Polo wasn't the first European to go to places such as China and India, but he was the first guy that went to those places that had a book written detailing his journeys. And this book would have a profound impact on future explorers. The places and people that Polo encountered would lure European dreamers and adventurers to the Far East, helping kickstart the Age of Discovery in the 14 and 1500s. Now, as always, some notes before we get going today. First thing, I want to remind everyone that the Explorers podcast has a fun little online store. We've got a few designs, including one of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, along with their dog, marching across a prairie. It is all good fun. And if you have a nerdy history person or a hiker type in your family, well, these make some great gifts. There are t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, and mugs, that sort of thing. So check it out if that strikes your fancy, just go to explorerspodcast.com. Second thing, a reminder that you can check out the website for more details on this podcast. This includes a map showing the route that Marco Polo took on his travels, which will help you enjoy the show. By the way, there is a link to the website and the map in our show notes of your podcast app. Final note for today is about pronunciations and names. Yes, I know I say this one a lot, but I want to add it for those venturing into the podcast for the first time. So, regarding names and pronunciations, we have a lot of difficult ones in this series, as we are heading from one side of Asia to the other. It means that I'll mess up some things, so my apologies in advance. Also, please know that a lot of the locations and people that we encounter have different names depending on who's doing the writing and when the writing took place. So you might find a place called one thing by Europeans, but another by the Chinese, and still another by the Persians. Now, this is always an issue to some degree on our show, but it will be especially true in this series. I will try and keep things to one name, but I'll note some of the alternative monikers along the narrative route. Okay, that is it. Notes are done. Let us get rolling. Part 1 of Marco Polo. In 1295, Marco Polo returned to his home in Venice after spending 24 years in Asia. Then, in either 1296 or 1298, he found himself participating in a war between his home city, Venice, and Genoa, another Italian city-state and Venice's arch-rival. Polo was a nobleman, and as such, he had contributed to the fighting of the war by outfitting a galley and heading off to fight the Genoans. Well, long story short, the Venetians would be defeated in a battle off the Anatolian coast, and Marco would be captured. Now, as a nobleman, Polo would be treated well by his captors. They wouldn't throw him in a dungeon or torture him or anything like that. Instead, he was given nice quarters, was well-fed, and treated with dignity. The Genoese saw Polo as an asset, something to barter with in the future. A dead Marco Polo netted them nothing, but a living Venetian noble had value. Marco Polo would spend one or three years in captivity, depending on when he was actually captured. During that time, he would encounter another hostage, a writer by the name of Rusticello da Pisa, or simply Rusticello. Rusticello was a romance writer whose ability to spin a good yarn made him a popular man amongst the prisoners and the captors. Now, Marco Polo was no slouch when it came to telling a good story, so the two men would be a match made in heaven. Polo would tell the stories of his two-plus decades in Asia to Rusticello, who would, from these conversations, create one of the most famous works of literature in history, 
The Travels of Marco Polo. The book was originally called Emilioni, meaning the million, a take on Polo's nickname. Another alternative title was The Book of Marvels, which is a pretty cool name if you ask me. Anyhow, Polo's book would become wildly popular. It told the story of his time in the exotic Far East, including China and India, places of legend to most Europeans. In time, the book would become like a Bible for people in the West when talking about Asia. It was a place that explorers and traders and monarchs dreamed of reaching, a place of silk and spices and gems and fabulous animals and cities. It would inspire countless men, including Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan, to undertake their epic voyages. In fact, there exists to this day a copy of Polo's book that belonged to Columbus. It is in a library in Seville, and you can see Columbus's handwritten notes in the margins of the book. It is pretty amazing to see. So with this series, we will go through the travels of Marco Polo. Today we will do some background on the man and his family, who are critical to the story, and get Marco on the road to Asia by episode's end. But to start, we have to put up some huge disclaimers for this story. Let me explain. The travels of Marco Polo are a classic example of legend mixing with reality, and this is for several reasons. First, Polo's travels took place in the late 1200s. Time, unfortunately, is rarely a friend to accuracy, and 700 plus years is a long time with regards to the written word. The truth is that no original version of the travels of Marco Polo has survived. This means that even our oldest copies of the manuscript are that, copies. As things got copied, well, stuff got changed. Text got added or removed, at times by accident, at other times on purpose. And this is even more of a problem as the book was translated into different languages. Of these early copies of the manuscript, each is different from the other. Sometimes the differences are big, sometimes small. Trying to determine what is right or wrong is something that scholars have been working on for centuries. Now the second issue is the author, Rusticello. The guy wanted to write stuff that people wanted to hear, so it's believed that he inserted things into the story to add spice to the narrative. Again, scholars are left trying to figure out which parts of the story are Rusticello's embellishments and which are not. A third issue is Marco Polo himself. Polo was a legendary braggart. He loved to tell stories, the bigger the better. Thus many people question exactly what is real and what is fiction. It is not an easy thing. By the way, a related issue involves the tactic of passing off other people's experiences as one's own. This was not uncommon at the time. Someone tells you a story, and when you pass the story on, you tweak some details and make it your own. So again, we are forced to figure out what sorts of things are actually Polo's experiences and what our stories and tales he, or Rusticello, may have co-opted. Again, it is not always easy. Now with all of these caveats noted, I will try and tell the story of Marco Polo as accurately as I can, alerting you to these inconsistencies and red flags along the way. So, before we get rolling, I do have one final notation, and that is about our source material, the book that is The Travels of Marco Polo. The truth is, there are lots of different editions to draw from, and trying to determine what's the best version is not easy. And let's face it, this book was written more than 700 years ago, and the presentation and style are very different from a modern narrative, which can make it kind of hard to read. With that in mind, know that I am relying heavily on the book Marco Polo from Venice to Xanadu by Lawrence Burgreen as a more modern interpretation of Polo's travels. Burgreen is an excellent writer and a historian. For his Polo book, he used one of the more recent and most complete manuscripts available. I believe that means we'll get as accurate and clear a narrative for this podcast as possible. So that's it for caveats and notes and sidetracks. On to our tale. 
The first thing that you should know about the story of Marco Polo is that it does not start with Marco Polo. Instead, it begins with his family, specifically his father and uncle, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo. In the 1200s, the Polo family were respected and wealthy merchants in Venice. They were amongst the city's merchant aristocracy and considered nobles, but they were not part of the upper crust of Venetian society. By the way, a little about Venice. At this time, Venice was an independent and wealthy city-state. The people did not see themselves as Italians, but as Venetians. Venice was wealthy due to their aggressive and opportunistic trade policies. Venetian merchants traveled everywhere and trafficked in anything that could turn a profit. That included spices, fabrics, gems, salt, drugs, minerals, slaves, and a hundred other commodities. The Venetian banking system was the most advanced in Europe. They relied heavily on gems as a way to make transactions instead of coinage. Venice's influence would continue to rise when, in 1204, the city would take part in the Fourth Crusade. While the Crusades were technically a religious exercise, the Venetians saw it as a business opportunity. In 1202, on the journey to the Middle East, the Crusader army decided to besiege the Christian city of Zara, which is in modern-day Croatia, and bring it under the control of Venice. And that venture made so much money, the army moved east and picked out an even bigger prize, the grand city of Constantinople, the gateway to the east and the capital of the Byzantine Empire. By the way, you may be asking, why are Crusader armies attacking Christian cities? And that's a good question. For simplicity's sake, we'll just say that there were a series of financial and political events that led the Crusaders to alter their plans, which had originally been to capture Jerusalem. The siege, capture, and looting of Constantinople would conclude in 1204 with the defeat and fragmentation of the Byzantine Empire, and it would leave Constantinople a shadow of its former self. Throughout the 1200s, Venice would grow its empire, spreading its colonies to Greece, Crete, Cyprus, and Turkey. Its link to Constantinople would remain strong as well. So that takes us to 1253, when brothers Niccolo and Maffeo Polo departed on a trading mission to the east. At the time, Niccolo did not know that his wife, Nicole Anna, was pregnant. She would deliver a boy, Marco, the next year. But we are not quite ready to talk about Marco Polo, because what many people don't realize is that his father and uncle would conduct an incredible journey to the Far East, laying the groundwork for a second journey many years later, which would include Marco. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The Polo brothers went to Constantinople and would spend six years there. These long periods of travel and trade were not uncommon for the era, but the city was politically unstable, and Niccolo and Maffeo decided to get out while the getting was good. They would convert all their goods to gems. It was a common practice to sew valuables such as these into the hems of one's clothing. However, the Polos would not head home due to pirates and bandits and enemies of Venice blocking their path. Instead, being entrepreneurs at heart, they went east to the city of Sudak on the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea. When the dangers found in the Mediterranean did not abate, the Polos turned their attention further east. 
they found the lands relatively safe due to the strict rule imposed by the legendary Mongols. Ah, the Mongols. This is the first time they have come up in our tale, but it will not be the last, not by a long shot. Not long ago, Mongol armies under the legendary Genghis Khan had reached all the way to the Danube River, and while the Mongols were brutal, they brought a stability that stretched from China to the Black Sea. Christian Europe was terrified of the Mongols, who had fought their way to the very doorsteps of Western civilization. Even now, their presence hovered uncomfortably near. The Christian church, in particular, feared being usurped by the armies of the mighty Kublai Khan, grandson of the legendary Genghis Khan. So this Pax Mongolica was in place when the Poles came to the edge of the Mongol Empire. Those that violated the peace would face the wrath of the Mongol administrators, which was quick and harsh. Now, that doesn't mean that things weren't dangerous in the wilds of the Middle East and Asia, but the Spice Road, which was really a connection of old trading routes, was working. For safety, people generally traveled in caravans, and goods such as spices, silks, and gems were flowing between Europe and Asia. The Polos, ever the opportunistic businessmen, would decide to go deeper into the realms of the Mongols, who were often referred to as Tartars. The Tartars, however, were just one group of Mongols, those hailing from a specific region in Asia located between the Caspian Sea slash Ural Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. The Polos went southeast along a branch of the Silk Road into what is modern-day Iraq. There they met the local ruler, Barka Khan, one of the many grandsons of Genghis Khan. The two men would be greeted warmly by Barka Khan, and it is here that the Polos would really get to know and understand the Mongol culture and world. The Mongols were fierce and often extremely cruel warriors, but they also understood the need for stability and prosperity. Thus, they wanted trade, they wanted safe roads, they wanted a happy, prosperous population. For the Venetian merchants, this was an eye-opener. The Mongols were not these rabid animals bent on destroying Christianity. In fact, this openness of the Mongols would mean there would be a very brisk and mutually advantageous exchange of not just trade goods, but knowledge, ideas, and even religion. There were Jewish merchants, Christian missionaries, and Muslim traders, all interacting together in this massive and burgeoning trade and cultural exchange. The Polos would spend a year with Barka Khan before deciding to return home. However, a local civil war would break out, forcing the two Venetians to, again, head east instead of toward their homes. The Polos would go to Bukhara, which is located in modern-day Uzbekistan. The journey there would be a fascinating one, as the Polos often traveled with the local nomadic Mongol people. In doing so, they would learn about such things as kumis, which is a fermented mare's milk. The Mongols loved it and drank it all the time. And there were the circular yurts, which are portable round tents used by the Mongols. But the most important thing that the Polos acquired was the ability to speak the Mongol tongue. As we have seen so often in the show, communication is often critical to the success of an explorer, and for Nicolo and Matteo Polo, this was very true. The city of Bukhara was a crossroad for traders between the east and west. It would provide a safe haven for the Polos as chaos and conflict broke out throughout the region. The two men would spend three years there, trading whenever they had the chance and growing richer each day. And then they met a Mongol ambassador who would give them a rare and unique opportunity. He offered to introduce the Polo brothers to the great Kublai Khan. With a return to Venice not in the cards, the Polos jumped at the chance. The journey east would take a full year. It was a hard and dangerous trek, but the two merchants would be eventually brought to the court of the great Kublai Khan. We don't know exactly where the Polos met the great Khan, but it was probably at the capital city of Kanbalik, which is modern-day Beijing. The Polos would find the Khan to be gracious, polite, and inquisitive. He quizzed the brothers at length on all sorts of topics, including religion and Christianity. He was far from the savage depicted by those in the West. 
The truth is that Kublai Khan was eager to learn from foreigners. He was open to new ideas and experiences, and he relished these kinds of conversations. In fact, the Khan employed many foreigners in positions of power. There were Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, and even Nestorian Christians serving the Khan throughout his vast realm. In the end, the Polos would find the Khan to be an impressive and imposing figure. The Polo brothers believed that they were the first European Christians to visit China, but there were, without question, others who had come before them. There are just not any books written about these early travelers. Now, as I mentioned, Kublai Khan employed foreigners throughout his empire, and he decided the Polo brothers would be perfect emissaries to send back to Europe and the Pope. Thus, the Khan would write out an official communique asking for Pope Clement IV to send 100 wise men of learning to teach the Khan and his court the details and doctrine of Christianity. He said these men should be ready to debate the merits of Christianity, so the Khan could determine if it should be incorporated into his world. I want to stress that Kublai Khan was not offering to replace any of the predominant religions of his realm with Christianity. He was offering to include it. That's a very different thing. The Mongols were good at this sort of thing. Their attitude was, the more the merrier. Thus, five gods was better than four. Kublai Khan also asked for oil from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The location is venerated as the burial site of Jesus Christ. I do want to mention that the Khan knew a great deal about Christianity, but his experiences were primarily with Nestorian Christians and Orthodox Christians. The Nestorians were commonly found in Persia, while Orthodox Christians were in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and parts of Asia. But the Church of Rome was a mysterious thing to the Khan, and he was greatly interested. Thus, the Poles would be given a Mongol passport, a tablet of gold engraved with a royal seal, called a Peza. The Peza would be their ticket to cross Asia. Local officials were obliged to provide them with not just safe passage, but horses, food, shelter, and aid. In addition to the passport, a Mongol representative would accompany the Polos. However, this man would get sick a few months after departing and would have to return. Thus, the Polo brothers would trek across Asia for a second time. Not much is known about this return trip, other than that they would reach the port of Ayas, now called Umartalik, which is on the northeastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, in 1269. The two men would go down the coast to the ancient seaport of Acre, which is in modern-day Israel. Acre is one of the oldest settlements in the world and was a crusader stronghold at this time. Thus, it had a powerful church presence. Here, they would find that Pope Clement IV had died the previous year, and no new pope had been elected. Unsure of what to do, the two men went to the local officials and were ultimately directed to the papal legate, Teobaldo Visconti. Visconti was a formidable man who counted kings and cardinals amongst his friends and as the papal legate, he was the pope's personal representative. Well, upon hearing the story of the Polos, Visconti saw an opportunity to expand the church's influence in the east. However, until a new pope was elected, there was not a lot he could do to help them. So, with the church absent a pope, Nicola and Maffeo decided to head home, to Venice, for the first time in 16 years. There, Nicola Polo was in for a couple of surprises. First, he would find that his wife had passed away, and second, he found himself with a son, 15-year-old Marco. And thus, we are finally introduced to Marco Polo. Not much is known about Marco's youth. He had been raised by an aunt and uncle, and he had been given a good education. As the son of a prominent merchant, he would have been taught the intricacies of the profession. For Marco, the appearance of his father would have been an astounding and fortunate situation. His father and uncle had come back to Venice, much wealthier men. And even more important, they had stories about a land that fascinated young Marco. He learned about the Silk Road, the Mongols, and above all else, the great Kublai Khan. So, two years later, Nicola and Maffeo Polo headed back east, to Acre, 
awaiting the election of the new pope. The two men wanted to be able to get instructions and documents from the papal representative as soon as the new pope was elected, and then head east to return to the great Khan with a reply from the church. The Polos would depart Venice in spring of 1271, but this time they would take with them 17-year-old Marco. They sailed in a fleet of Venetian ships, many holding pilgrims going to the Holy Land, hugging the shoreline as they went. In Acker, the Polos would be welcomed back by the papal legate, Teobaldo Visconti. With no pope elected, they would request permission to travel to Jerusalem to gather the consecrated oil from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They would get permission and the oil after making a hefty donation to the church. Back in Acre, the Polos would get antsy. Sitting around did not make them any money. Thus, they went to Visconti and asked for papers to take to the Khan, explaining the situation that had delayed their return. The Polos would get their documents and prepare to depart for the Far East. By the way, they seemed to have just ignored the whole request for a hundred learned men. The holy oil and the documents from the papal legate would have to be enough. The Polos would start by traveling up the coast to Ayas before heading east. However, once there, they would receive some big news. A new pope had finally been elected, and the new pope was none other than Teobaldo Visconti, their friend and ally in Acre. By the way, the 34-month gap in popes was the longest in church history. So back to Acre went the Polos, who were, again, welcomed by Visconti, who, by the way, would go on to become Pope Gregory X. So with the Pope-elect sitting in front of them, the Polos would get what they wanted. There would be official documents from the Pope to be delivered to the Khan, and two learned and important friars would accompany them on their journey east. And there would be all sorts of other cool stuff, including crystals and jewels, gifts for the Khan. The new Pope saw this as a unique and rare opportunity to spread Christianity to the far east. So east went the Polos and their two priests. Everything seemed to be going pretty good. They were essentially under the employ of both the Church of Rome and the Mongol Empire, and the Paizo, the Mongol passport, was still in effect. The plan was to travel southeast to the port of Hormuz, which was at the entrance of the Persian Gulf, right between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and from there they would get a ship and head east to India and then go overland to China. However, the small company would run into an issue in Armenia when a local sultan threatened them. Afraid to move on, the two friars refused to continue east. But for the Polos, that was standard stuff. They elected to move forward alone. And this is, really, where the journey to the fabled lands of China and India begin for young Marco Polo. And it is a good place to pause our story. Next time, we will plunge east as 17-year-old Marco Polo and his father and uncle seek an audience with the legendary Kublai Khan. However, before we go, I want to throw out two things. First, while everyone knows about Marco Polo, many people don't realize that his father and uncle had actually gone to China and visited the great Khan before him. Also on his journey, Marco was really just tagging along, at least at first. Thus, we should acknowledge the contributions of Niccolo and Maffeo Polo. What they had done was really quite extraordinary. Even without Marco Polo's famed book, they still would be remembered for doing some amazing things, so long as someone had taken the time to write about it. Second thing, as noted earlier, the Polos were not the first Europeans to reach China. Many other men had been there before, it's just that none of these guys had as good a marking department as Marco. So, that is it for today, part one in our series on the fabled travels of Marco Polo. I hope you have enjoyed the start to this series. Thank you for listening, please take care, and I will see you next time.